Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for these who serve you by making your word known to uh, the next generation. Lord, I pray your blessings upon each and every volunteer, uh, upon the parents of these next-gen students and children. Uh, Father, upon the next generation itself, we would ask that you'd continue to just pour out wisdom in the the parents and in your church, uh, that we might uh, show them your way and that they might be able to walk in your steps. Father, as we open your word today, we pray that we would be teachable. We pray that our hearts would be uh, touched by you, that, Father, we would be transformed and changed, and we thank you for this opportunity to gather in your presence and study your word together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we are continuing a series this morning that we started a couple weeks ago called In His Steps. And uh, if you are just joining us for the very first time, uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. And you can go to our website and you can catch up on any of the messages through our podcast or our live stream. Uh, but we have a theme verse for this series, and it comes uh, from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. And it, here's, what 1 Peter, here's what Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. And so we've been looking for the last several weeks at people who have followed in the steps of Jesus, who've heard his invitation to come follow me and have responded. And and we've wanted to know, what did it mean for those first followers to follow Jesus? And what does it mean for us today? All All these centuries later, what does it mean for the church today to follow in the steps of Jesus? And so we've we've learned a couple things. The first week we said this: that following Jesus isn't a set of boxes to check but a set of footprints to follow. Now, what we mean by that is you can check all the religious boxes, you can attend all the right religious services, sing all the songs, go through all the rituals, you can even check all the boxes of things that you say, yes, I believe these things, and still not follow Jesus. It's not enough to be a Christian. In fact, we said that Jesus never called or invited anybody to be a Christian. He called and invited them to be his disciples, to follow in his steps. So following Jesus is more than checking a set of boxes. It's following in the footsteps of Christ. And then last week we said that ministry is a byproduct of that. That ministry is a byproduct of a life lived in the steps of Jesus. For many of us, we spend a lot of our time searching for God's will for my life. If God would just send that telegram, that email, then I would know what I'm supposed to do and how I'm supposed to do it. And so we look for God's will in all these other places when in the Bible, consistently, God's invitation is, follow me, trust me. And as we do that, as we are going in following Christ... He, he shows us his purpose for us, and we live out that purpose as we're following in the steps of Jesus. But if we're not committed to following after Christ, not only will we miss Christ, but we'll miss the purpose he has for our life along the way. So for the past couple of weeks, we've looked at this from a very much, very much from an individual standpoint. How does this affect me personally? How does this affect you as individuals? But today I want to turn a corner and I want to talk about this from a different standpoint. Because it's not just about me, it's actually about us. Because your willingness to follow in the steps of Jesus isn't only about you. It can have profound impact on the people who are around you. Family, friends, co-workers, even strangers. When you decide to follow in Jesus' steps, there's a ripple effect that takes, that takes part. Uh, and, and I want today to, to look a little bit about that, about how we as a church follow in the steps of Jesus and how it affects us. Because the church at its most basic element 
is just a group of pilgrims all following Jesus together. That's what we do. We come together and we are doing the best we can as individuals to follow in the steps of Jesus. And we help each other out along the way. That's what the church is for. So today I want to take a look at a passage of scripture that teaches us about the very first church and how they did it. And in particular, I want to look at the beginning of this church up into its very first crisis. Because you usually don't know what it means to follow Jesus until you followed him in a storm, in a crisis. That's when the real test comes. And so this morning I want to look at that first church and how they handled that first crisis. Because I think it shows us a lot about what it means to follow Jesus together. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to go ahead and open to Acts. We're going to be looking at a few verses in Acts 1 and 2, and then we're going to be in verse 6. Now, just to kind of bring you up to speed, if, if you're not a Bible reader or you're not in church uh, on a regular basis, Jesus came and he, uh, he lived for 33 years on the earth, and for his final three years, he called these disciples who followed him. And he taught them everything. He performed miracles, demonstrated to them what it meant to live the Christ life. And then he was crucified. And after the crucifixion, the disciples kind of scattered. They thought, oh, well, it's all over with. You know, it didn't work out the way we'd hoped, and they went into hiding. But three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, and that changed everything. And then for 40 days, Jesus walked on earth and continued to tell his disciples and to teach to the people who had followed him. And as he was getting ready to ascend into heaven, he spoke to them, and he gave them some very important instructions— Remember, his invitation to the, to the disciples at the beginning was, come, follow me. As he's preparing to leave them, I want you to listen for the direction that he gives them. We're going to look at two verses, Acts 1-8. Jesus said this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, I, I want you just to get in your mind a, a picture here, because Jesus is talking kind of in concentric circles. Jerusalem is right where the disciples were. That's pretty much where Jesus had called them. In Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem, they had lived and they had worked in that area. When he said, come follow me, they literally followed him in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. But he's telling them to do something. He's telling them to go somewhere that he has not himself physically gone. He's saying, I want you to continue to go into Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, but I want you to carry this message all the way to the ends of the earth. Listen to how he said it in Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. As you are going, as you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So Jesus, who has led these disciples for three years, is now sending them out into all the world. To follow in the steps of Jesus means to go to the ends of the earth. So the disciples heard this message. Now remember, just a few hours ago, they were hiding. They were, they were scared for their lives. And now all of a sudden, they've been given this charge to go into the ends of the earth. And so Jesus said, but you're not going to have to do it on your own. The Holy Spirit is going to be with you. Go into the upper room and wait. So they waited. They waited in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit came. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Those who accepted his message, that was Peter. Peter preached a message to them. Those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. God was changing things in the city of Jerusalem. 
The Holy Spirit was on the move and people were coming to faith in Christ. Many of the people who believed that day were the same people who were in the crowd who shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Some of them were the same people who, who, had, who had conspired against Jesus and falsely accused him. And now they were coming to faith in Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in that upper room. About 3,000, the Bible says. Now, the scholars point to this and they say, this is the birth of what we call the church. Now, I want to talk for just a minute about that word, church, because we use it all the time. In the New Testament, the, the, the writers, when they talk about the word that we translate church, they use a Greek word that is called ekklesia. Ekklesia. Everybody say it with me. Ekklesia. Ekklesia literally means the gathered ones, the congregation, the assembly. Okay? So, so it is a word, ekklesia, that is talking about people. You are the ecclesia. You are the people who are gathered here. That's the ecclesia. Now, in English, when we see that word in the New Testament, it's translated, and it's translated as the word church. But we don't get the word church from the Greek word ecclesia. We get the word church from a German word that is called kirk. And the word kirk means the house of God, a cathedral, or a place of worship. Now, do you notice the difference between those two? One is about people, the other is about a building. One is about people, the other is about a building. Now here's why this is so important for us to understand as an ecclesia, as the called out ones, as the church. Because it wasn't a building that launched the beginning of this movement. In fact, it wasn't an organizational structure or a hierarchy at all. It wasn't a set of bylaws. This movement that started wasn't even centered on the New Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet. It hadn't been written yet. This group of people that gathered, 3,000 people who came to faith in Christ, were a powerful movement that would ultimately change all of Jerusalem, the the Roman Empire, and ultimately it would have an impact on the world so that 2,000 years later, on a continent that nobody then could could even fathom existed, we are talking about this story. And that happened not because, not because the church had a building, not because they were organized, not because they had a structure or bylaws, and not even because they had the New Testament. It happened because of, a, of an event, and that event was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason that the church has endured and the church exists today is because Jesus defied death and the grave and is alive. And that's the reason that the church has existed. It began with an event. And so as we look at this movement, you have to understand, when you talk about a church, and in your mind you mean a building, in your mind you mean a cathedral, this is going to blow some of your mind, so hold on. Buildings don't move. I mean, I know mobile home moves, but buildings (laughs) don't move. They stay where they are. That was never the intention of the church. That was never the call of Jesus for his church. He said, hey, listen, I want you to go. If you're going to follow me, that means you can't stay where you are and follow me at the same time. You have to be willing to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You have to be willing to walk out of the doors of the church and go into the corners of the city that nobody else will go into, go into the parts of the world that nobody else will go into, and you have to be willing to tell them the good news of the gospel. And so the church began to grow. Look what happened in verse 42 of Acts 2. Verse 42, and then we'll skip down to verse 46. 
So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Where were they meeting? In their homes and in the temple courts. So they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the church continued to grow. Didn't have a building, didn't have an organizational structure, didn't even have the New Testament. It was just a group of people who were, who were passionate about telling the message, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive, and he changes everything. And so the church continued to grow, and with growth came some incredible challenges, because challenges always accompany growth. And so, so as we look at Acts chapter 6, we see the church reach its first crisis. And how the church handled this crisis, I think, has a lot to say to us as a congregation about how we follow Jesus together as a congregation. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 6. I want to look at three things in particular. I want to look at the problem, I want to look at the solution, and I want to look at the results. The problem, the solution, and the results. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Remember, by now there are as many as 10,000 believers in the city of Jerusalem, okay? 10,000 believers, and there were 12 apostles. They had replaced Judas by this point. And listen to what happens, Acts 6, verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So we have a problem here, two specific problems. The first problem is that ministry was lacking, There was a need for something to take place, and it wasn't happening. There were racial differences in the makeup of the church, and some who were on the outside, they were non-Jews, there was a sense that they weren't being cared for as well as some of the Jewish widows. And so there was a problem. Ministry was lacking. But there was another problem, and that was this, that the apostles were overwhelmed. And so they were forced to have to prioritize their efforts. Look what it says in verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said... It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. In other words, wait on tables is kind of a euphemism that means uh, minister to people, serve people. That's what that means. So, So these leaders understood something. They understood that they had to have priorities in order in, in, in a, to be able to lead the church well. And they were willing to make a hard decision for the good of the mission. Because what was the mission of the church? The mission of the church was to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the apostles understood, hey, if we, if we get bogged down and, and we're waiting, for all, waiting on all of these widows ourselves, we're not going to be able to accomplish the mission that Jesus has given us. Is it important that we minister to the widows? Absolutely. The Old Testament, in fact, says that religion can be summarized by this, that you care for the widows and the orphans. So is it important? Clearly it's important, but we have a problem. There are only 12 of us, and we're responsible. How are we supposed to care for these hundreds and hundreds of widows and fulfill the great commission that Jesus has left for us? They they had an issue. These were leaders who understood and recognized that every yes is a no to something else. Every yes is a no to something else. You would do well to remember that. Every time you say yes, because there are a lot of you who say yes to everything. You don't know how to say no. But in fact, every time you say yes... You're saying no to something else. It's inevitable. And as a church, it's important to know that. And the leaders of the Jerusalem church understood that every yes was a no to something else. So what was the solution? Look at verse 3 through 5. 
Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Two key requirements, full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. Now, this is the first example we see in the church of congregational governance. This was the first church business meeting, if you will. The the church had a problem, and the leaders got together, and they said, you guys get together, figure out, choose seven people from among you who are full of the Spirit and full of wisdom, and and set them apart for this purpose. Here was the solution. The solution was that people were empowered to minister. You see, the disciples could have said, you know what? We're the apostles. We're the ones with the title. We need to take care of this. But if they had done that, they would not have been able to lead the church to fulfill the Great Commission. So instead, they said, you know what? You're the church. You're the ecclesia. Figure it out. Solve the problem. God gifts his church by gifting individuals to minister to the needs of his church. God has gifted Southside Baptist Church by gifting you to meet the needs of the church. That's how God works. The solution is sitting all around you. See, in the contemporary church today, it is so often focused on programs and it's focused on production, but the focus of the New Testament church was always on people. Church is not a place to sit and watch professionals perform ministry. It's a place where people are equipped to participate in ministry. That's what we're called to do. It's not about the production and it's not about the program. It's about the people being equipped and engaged in ministry. And the apostles set that example for us in that very first crisis that they faced. See, people are called to do exactly what Jesus commanded us to do. We're called to do exactly what Jesus did. If I'm going to walk in the steps of Jesus, that means I have to minister to the people the way Jesus ministered to them. I am called to make disciples because Jesus made disciples. And so because Jesus made disciples and Jesus called me to follow him, I do what Jesus did by making disciples. So let's look at the result of what happened. So you had the problem, the solution, and let's look at the result. Verse 6 and 7. They, the church, presented these men, seven of them, to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now three things, three specific things happened as a result of this. Let's take a look at each one of those. First of all, God's word spread. God's word spread, which is, which is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. That God's word would spread. So that mission accomplished even as they addressed the challenge that they faced as a congregation. It would have been really easy for that church at that point to turn inward. Say, you know what? We really can't take on anymore right now. We're at capacity. So we just need to deal with sort of our internal problems. And once we deal with our internal problems, then we'll get back to the Great Commission. Listen, churches make that decision every day and it is a fatal mistake. Those are the churches that die. When a church faces a crisis, it's even more critical that the church turns and, and realigns itself with the mission of Jesus. And the mission of Jesus is to go and make disciples. And that's exactly what the church in Jerusalem did, so God's word spread. The second thing that happened is the number of disciples rapidly increased. Now, I would say that the growth from, from about 12 to anywhere from 12 to 100 disciples who were with Jesus 
at the time of his crucifixion, from that point to 5,000 to 10,000 was pretty rapid growth. But we hear that after this, after Acts chapter 6, it grew rapidly. It grew even more rapidly than that. So the number of disciples increased. And the third thing that happened is that people of influence were converted. It says that the Jewish priests, many of the Jewish priests became believers. How did that happen? I believe that happened because the people in the Jerusalem church were empowered to be the ministers of the church. And they went back into their homes back into their neighborhoods, back into their workplaces, back into their schools. And as they went back, they were living on mission. They were following in the steps of Jesus in those places. And they were impacting all of culture and all of society. And that's exactly what God has called us to do, Southside. There's been a lot that has changed over 2,000 years, but that has not changed. That's what God has called us and invited us to do. Now, as I I wrap this up this morning, I want to do it in a little bit of a practical way. And if you're a guest at Southside, and maybe this is your first time with us, um, this might seem like a little inside baseball for you, but I'm glad you're here because this tells you something really important about us as a church and, and how we operate. This passage of Scripture, if you read it carefully, really points to two positions of leadership in this first Jerusalem church. And there are two positions of leadership that we as a congregation have also adopted. Uh, If you look at this, it's the deacons. This is the beginning of what became known as the deacon ministry. The word is not used in Acts chapter 6, but it is used later, these deacons. And the other ministry that you see is the ministry of the apostles or the ministry that will become known later in the New Testament as the ministry of elders, people who lead and guide the church. So you have these two groups uh, working together. You see it at its very first stage in Acts chapter 6. I want to talk about each of these for just a moment. I want to talk first about deacons. Um, The word in the New Testament, diakonos, is translated as servant. So it's if you hear the word deacon, it, it conjures up some high office in the church. In fact, the word literally means a servant. Now, when we transliterate the word diakonos, we get the word deacon, which is what we call the office. But don't be confused. A a deacon is called to be a servant. It is not someone who is set above. It is, in fact, someone who is called to be like Christ, come behind and beneath to support and minister and serve other people. At Southside Baptist Church, our deacon ministry operates and serves through our small groups. So when we invite you to gather, grow, and go, gather to worship, grow in a small group, and to go on mission with Christ, when we invite you to grow, we want you to be in a small group, first of all, because we believe that it's the best way to engage with God's Word and other believers to grow spiritually. That's critical that you do that, that you be in a community, not where you're just hearing somebody talk at you, but where you can enter into a conversation, because circles are better than rows. So we think that's important. But another reason why we stress and emphasize your involvement in a small group is because it is in a small group where our deacons are able to minister to the needs of the congregation. Our deacons serve through our small group to meet the needs of the people who are at Southside Baptist Church. And so so we want to invite you to be a part of of that. Now, I want to talk for just a minute also about the other group that Acts 6 points us to, and that's the ministry of elders. In this case, it was the apostles. At Southside Baptist Church, we call this our Council of Trustees. This is a group of leaders set apart by you, the congregation, who will dedicate themselves to prayer and to the doctrinal doctrinal integrity of the church to help guide the church on a day-to-day basis and they're, 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 they're basically are also servants who, who help us tend to the issues of the church so that we can accomplish the Great Commission. In your 
communication card, that ministry covenant card I, I pointed out to you earlier. We are asking members of the church to nominate for 2017 people to serve on our deacon body and to also serve on our council of trustees. The reason that I wanted you to hear this from Acts chapter 6 is because I want you to understand the caliber of leaders that were called the very first time the church faced a crisis. Because that's the caliber of leader that we should call as a congregation today to serve the church and to meet the needs of the church. And here's why this is important for every one of us. Because being a servant is a command given to all believers regardless of title. You are not electing people to serve as deacons so that you don't have to be a servant. We are all called to be servants. Every single one of us are called to be a servant. In fact, deacon and elder are not titles that we bestow, but they're characteristics that we should recognize. So you don't nominate someone to become a deacon because you think they will make a good deacon. That's not why you nominate them. You nominate someone who, to be a deacon because they already are a good deacon. They're already a servant. You don't nominate someone to serve on the council of trustees because you think they'll make a good leader. You nominate them because they are a good leader. They do exercise wisdom in their decision making. So, so as we as a congregation set aside these people for, for leadership, I, I want to invite you to do, do a couple things. First, I want to invite you to prayerfully consider who among us is called and gifted to serve as deacons and trustees And I want you to nominate them using the 2016 Ministry Covenant card. I just want you to take that card and I want you to write their names down and you can turn that in. You can also go online and if you go to uh, the page that says In His Steps, there's an online version of the form. If you're a member of Southside Baptist Church, this is important. Every member of Southside Baptist Church should prayerfully consider making a nomination. Every member of Southside Baptist Church should prayerfully consider making a nomination. Who do you see around you who embodies these characteristics? of servanthood, of wisdom, of godliness. And, and, and you set them apart and you say, help guide our church to follow in the steps of Christ that we can accomplish his mission. And here's how I want to conclude this morning. I want to ask you just a simple question. How has God empowered you? How has God equipped you? How has God gifted you to meet the needs of his church? Remember, God gifts his church by gifting individuals in his church to meet the needs of his church. What gifts has God given you that you are the solution to a problem that the church faces? You are the solution to a problem that somebody on your row faces. You are the answer to somebody's prayer. But the only way that you'll ever be able to answer that prayer, the only way God will answer that prayer through you, is if you follow in the steps of Jesus. If you commit yourself day by day, step by step, to following Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord God, today we have covered a, a big section of church history, an important section. And Lord, I know that uh, we, we have barely even scratched the surface of what it is that your word is offering us to teach us. Not just about the church 2,000 years ago, but about your church today. And not just about your church, but about each one of us as individuals. Men and women, boys and girls who are called to follow you. How we work together to continue the mission that Jesus set before us. The great commission to go into all the world. Lord, for some of us here today, uh, we don't even have to go that far. 
We, we just have to go into our house because there's somebody in our house who needs us to serve them and by serving them to earn the right to speak truth about the message of Christ to them. For some of us, we just need to walk back into our schools. We just need to walk back into our office. We need to walk back into our neighbor's house. Father, help us to follow in your steps with the confidence of knowing that we are walking right behind you and that you are calling us and leading us and through the power of your Holy Spirit, you're gifting us to serve. Father, thank you for this congregation who is so committed to following you. Lord, may it be more than a commitment that we make with our mouths. May it be a commitment that we make with our feet. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.